Greetings, everybody. Dan Palmer here, welcoming you back to the Making Permaculture Stronger podcast. And this is episode 56, which I'm excited and feeling very happy to be making happen. It's been, I've been itching to get to this for a while. I've actually got a few other interesting, exciting episodes already recorded. But before I started releasing those, I wanted to make the time with just myself to go and gently explore, unpack the contents of the last episode, which was Carol Sanford sharing with us what she calls the seven first principles of regeneration. I'm getting a lot of value from exploring these, reflecting on these, applying these, and I've been led to well, at least one insight to do with how two of these first principles, or, or, the, or where they've led me anyway, the idea of holes in essence. So I look forward to, to sharing that, and I'll move through them one at a time. Um, I'm also probably going to stop here and there to go back and listen to what she said or look at a few notes I've found that she's made elsewhere. I'll share links to various notes I've found, including a series of very short, punchy videos Carol has made. I'll put all that stuff on, links to all that stuff on the um, show notes, so check it out at makingpermaculturestronger.net. And you can head to carolsanford.com for information about Carol's books and other projects. And before I go any further, I'd like to share my intention, which I wrote down before I started, which is I am continuing to explore the seven first principles in a way that supports listeners to better grasp and go experiment with them so that we are realizing together any value they can bring to our lives, projects, and the Making Permaculture Stronger journey. With that end in mind, I'll add another aspect to what I'd like to focus on, and that is to continue a very long interest I've had in moving away from deadening mechanical ways of thinking. And in my experience, unless you're doing this consciously, then your mind, your way of seeing and being and doing and interacting and everything is constantly being hijacked or controlled by very, very deeply embedded um, ideas that really see the world as a, as a giant machine. Sometimes people attribute this this idea to the likes of Descartes and Newton. They, they seem to cop some of the blame. And in a, in a simple way of putting it is that part of what Descartes did was open up the idea that, well, if we want to understand some part of the universe, let's pretend it's like a giant machine, you know, like a clockwork machine. And then we can understand the different cogs and springs and levers and stuff and, and put them back together and see if we can replicate it and that's a good way of understanding things the, the idea is that over time we, we stopped pretending and it became very deeply embedded in how we view things and I want to bring that out a little bit hopefully because to me it very very definitely has impacted and does impact a lot of the way permaculturists including myself have worked um, and, and, and that's part of what making permaculture stronger is about disrupting so keep that in mind I'll also invite you just to notice as we go along you might you know often with new ideas we feel different kinds of resistance good to notice that stuff and working more closely with Carol, I've realized a huge part of what she's on about is supporting individuals to be in the process of, of, of staying awake, of being in ongoing development, and in, especially in constantly testing any ideas against their own experience without simply accepting or rejecting them on a purely intellectual level. All right, let's jump right in. So uh, I'll touch on the first and then we'll jump into the second. I want to share an epiphany I've had that relates to both of them, or it was, was both of them that took took me to this place. So oh, and there's also a Brazilian woofer named Tiago involved in this, this upcoming story. So um, the first one is identify the hole you're working with. The idea is if you want to work regeneratively, you've got to identify the hole, the W-H-O-L-E you're working with up front. And one thing Carol said was if you're working with a fragment, 
a part or a problem, you're not working regeneratively because you're working with a non-whole and therefore you can't see it as alive. It's just a slice. So one last oh, a disclaimer is that this is me just riffing and sharing where the, the stuff's taking me. It's, it's nothing... It should be clear, I'm in no way representing Carol's thought, and no doubt she'd have <laughs> lots of things to say about the ideas I'll, I'll share. But uh, whatever, I'm, I'm, I'm just, I'm just um, hopefully deepening my own understanding, and, and hopefully there's something of use for you in here too. So a big part of what I get from the way I've seen Carol talk about holes is this idea of take some time up front, bef- firstly not to jump straight into parts, problems, and fragments, which we do very easily, and I'll give some examples of that in a bit, to actually be able to image the entity you're trying to contribute to or serve, whether it's a landscape or a person or an organization, as a living whole. This idea of being able to see something as alive and whole and actually vivify it, bring it to life in our minds and see that it has a history and, and a present moment and it's a trajectory into the future. And it, it it's operating from or towards being whole and complete. And also that as a whole, it's 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 aspiring toward to add value to some other, perhaps larger whole that it's nested within, which which we'll pick up on again later. One of the later principles, which is nestedness. So it's just taking that time to really appreciate and sit with the question and see where that question takes you. Is what is the whole here? Sometimes it's not so clear, right? What is the whole I'm working with? Is it this whole organisation? Is it this whole person? Is it this whole um, farm? Or to Carol, that most farms would be a a fragment or a slice, so you'd, you'd be looking through the particular property boundaries to ask well, what's the larger watershed, or as she pointed out, she sees that as itself as a fragmentary concept, life shed. You know, in this, in this, what we'd usually call a water catchment, let's call it a life shed, acknowledging that um, there's a lot more than just water being caught here. And just take some time to, she talks about image it as whole and alive. And in our chat, she also said that if it's a whole, it has internally, so so you can sort of image it as a, as a living whole. You can see it as adding value, as being alive and in process and adding value to some larger whole. You can also see internally that it has system structures and processes. So for me, when I think about that in terms of me as an organism, you know, there's the respiratory system, the digestive system. There's structures like the skeletal structure, I guess, musculature. Um, and obviously there's, there's all the processes that are supported by those structures and systems such as digestion and circulation, etc. Oh, and she, she talked a little bit about that in the case of a, of a life shed, that, it, that any life shed is, is structured in a certain way. It has various systems, hydrological and so on, and it engages different kinds of processes that are evolving. And I guess you've got to be careful there because you don't want to then further fragment into, okay, what are the different aspects of the hydrological process? You might do that later, I suppose, but initially just want to take some time to appreciate the entity you're trying to work with as a whole, which I can relate to. And certainly when I started as a permaculture design consultant, I didn't do that. You know, I'd have a quick look around. Oh, this is a nice property. All right, let's, let's get to it. pH, soil, gates, access, water, structures. Let's map what's already here. Let's ask the clients what they want. Let's you know roll on with our design. And pretty much the entire time, we're dealing with fragments. As a father, this rings true when you're uh, de- you know, engaging with children. And children are very good at 
how should I say this? They're very good at doing things that don't line up with your expectation of <laughs> how things should be done, let's say. And and by definite, that, that's a problem, right? If I focus on the problem and, and engage with the child through the lens of the problem they're causing me, you know, the thing I don't like about them right now, I'm seeing a fragment of them and I'm, I'm grasping at fragments to try and put together some sort of solution or cope and coping mechanism, whatever it is, as opposed to taking a moment to remind myself, this is a whole living being that's actually striving in its own way to be whole and complete and has internal system structures and processes. And if I can image this child as alive, as a living whole, I can, I'm probably going to be able to bring a different kind of energy and notice different ways I could engage rather than simply trying to go in and come up with a fragmented solution to a fragmented problem. Okay, let's move on to number two. And then we're going to cycle back and we're going to jump back and forth a little bit. So number two, she calls essence. And she said that every living being has an essence that is formed in its origin. Now, this is where the, the Brazilian woofer Tiago comes in, Love, lovely young man um, who's been traveling around New Zealand with his, with his partner, Hinata. And it's been my pleasure to meet and have some conversations with them recently. And they were listening to the podcast and reading some, some of Carol's books I'd lent them. And we got into a conversation about it. And Tiago had a bit of resistance, or I'd say a fair bit of resistance around this idea of essence, which I, mean, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but it's, it seemed like it landed as a kind of, I don't know, maybe a... An overly spiritual concept, or particularly the idea that that every living being, every person, every whatever, has this this deep hidden essence inside of it that we need to discover. And how could how could you do that authentically without imposing what you think its essence should be? That kind of line of thought, which fascinated me, and and it was great for me to reflect on that. And what I realised was this, and this is this is really the insight I wanted to unpack and and share with you because it resonates with an insight I've had in a completely different context where I, I got benefit from the writings of Christoph Alexander and Henry Bortoft, who was drawing on the, the German philosopher, poet, scientist, um, Goethe. And it's to do with how we engage with holes. And so what I realized was the value I'm getting from what Carol calls essence is not to do with the idea that there's this thing called an essence that every living being has. That can be a working hypothesis that I can accept and reject in my own time. But the underlying idea I'm getting value from has nothing to do with that. So you can actually let go of the word essence of the idea that things have to have an essence and unless I'm discovering and, and, and revealing the essence of something, um, I'm not working regeneratively. However, the value I'm getting is from the process that results in what Carol calls essence, which I'll call essentializing. And I, I'm just, I, I love this idea of essentializing. And so essentializing contrasts with complicating, complexifying, certainly with simplifying or summarizing. It's none of those things. And in a subsequent conversation with, with Tiago and Hanata, it was fun to share this perspective that had emerged for me, which is, okay, you're going to be engaging with holes, you know, with life sheds, with people, organizations. We all are in our lives, right? Now, if you want to be able to add value to those holes in a non-generic way, by which I mean in a way that doesn't simply impose some pre-cooked solution, like here's my seven-step formula, or you need a swale herb spirals and a chicken tractor and chinampas or whatever. If you actually want to resource the whole that you're working with, be it a person, organization, or, or landscape, as in return it to itself as a source and, and support it to develop and express in itself in its own special way, then imposing generic solutions isn't it, right? I think that's, that's clear. 
one way or another, you're going to have to acknowledge that this hole you're engaging with is different from other holes. So I guess I'm making a kind of an argument here, so see if you follow along. So what I'm saying is that if you don't want to simply blindly impose some generic solution, which has nothing to do with regeneration, and I don't think should be anything to do, I'm sad that I think it is often something that happens in permaculture, even if we deny it, um, but I don't think it's anything to do with the core of what permaculture is about, then you have to acknowledge and somehow get in touch with the fact that Different holes are different. You know, this life shed is different from that life shed. This person is different from that person. This organization is different from... All right, so I don't, I don't think you can wriggle out of that one. Now, there's a couple of different ways. Well, there may be a whole lot of ways, I don't know. But I'm going to contrast two ways of uh, engaging with what is distinctive about a hole you're dealing with. Again, be it a person, an organization, a life shed, or some other hole. One way, and to me this is the most common way, and it's certainly the way I use for a long time as a practicing professional permaculture design consultant, is whether we do it explicitly or implicitly to make a list. So what we do is we start to list different characteristics or attributes of the whole. In the case of a life shed, we make a list, again, whether we write this stuff down or we're just doing it in our minds. What's the elevation? What's the slope? What's the aspect? What's the land size? What's the soil type? What's the geology? What's the water quality? What's the existing flora and fauna? What's the agricultural land use history, etc. So we start to make a list. And every every new piece of information we add to our list increases how in touch we are with what makes this place different. Are you with me? And I'm sure most of you who know anything about permaculture design know this is definitely part of the process. Same with an organization, you know, whatever, how many people, what's its mission statement, how long has it existed, what's its industry, blah, 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 what's its current turnover, or a person, what's their IQ, uh, what are their interests, where do they live, how tall are they, how much do they weigh, so on and so forth. And if this is our default pattern, the way we get more in touch with a whole is by making a longer list. But here's the thing, what a list is, is is a collection of fragments. So if that's the way we get in touch with the distinctiveness of a whole that we want to serve and add value to, we're going down a fragmenting path. Because each piece of information is literally a fragment, it's a slice or a sliver. It definitely tells us something about the whole, but none of these fragments alone is anything but a fragment. And it, you know... How do you not do that? Well, you do do it. You just change the mind with which you do it. And then you bring in this this activity called essentializing. And instead of trying to accumulate a list that's big enough to do justice to what's distinctive about this life, share this person, this organization, in conjunction with developing your lists mentally or externally, you start to essentialize, which is you start to ask, What's underneath? So the idea here is that we can engage with the distinctiveness of a given whole at a more superficial level, as in a big long list of superficial presenting characteristics, or at a deeper level. And I'm using the word essentialize to go to the deeper level. And again, we're not simplifying, we're not summarizing. So we're not simply saying, well, let's let's just choose the 10 um, most important things on the list or try and actually, um, you know, reduce 
every 10 items in the list into one item or anything like that. It's sitting with this question of what might be underneath this? So let's say you're looking at a child, and I've been doing this, I've actually been doing this with my daughters, where I've been saying, hey, when this when this beautiful child is being themselves and doing, you know, they're, they're being self-directed, you know, they do a bit of this, they do a bit of that, they do a bit of this and so on, is there anything underneath that? Is there any, any, any words I could use to kind of capture an underlying, I guess you could say commonality, or almost like a place from from which those those surface differences are, might be sourced? Think of it that way. Where are all these things sourced? And in the case of a life shed, I've been doing this where I'm currently located, which is next to a river in a valley, a large river flat. It might be a kilometre across with some quite sharp ridges on either side. And I remember Carol talking about how the, um, in her approach, you wouldn't call the river a hole. And that is raising some questions for me because I'm learning about a conversation that's that's happening between Māori tangata whenua, people of the land here and some of the colonial legal systems where they set a precedent in a part of New Zealand to give a, a river legal personhood. And and I know that in, uh, in the Māori world, rivers are talked about as, as living beings. Um, so I'm curious to learn more about that and, and also you know, where does the river stop and start. In any case... You know, quibbling about where the boundaries are exactly aside, I'm imaging this larger landscape, which is this big wide river flat flanked by these sharp ridges with a river flowing down the middle, which in most places has been forced to go straight by stop banks and stone banks and stuff. But for tens and hundreds of thousands of years has been doing the slow motion fire hose wriggle to generate this this river flat and so there's I can make a list right and I've done that before you, you know we can list so many how, how deep are the soil how many worms are there in um, each square meter what's what's the the ground cover currently what's the wind patterns temperatures and climate and geology and water and tr- trees and you know you might organize your list around the scale of permanence if you're familiar with what that is it's pretty good as far as lists go anyway to do what I'm calling essentializing would be to sit with the question of, well, how could I kind of get underneath all of these details to something that they might be sourced from, that I can hold in mind more easily? And one one idea I've been playing with is that this wider landscape is a self-replenishing fertility battery or a self-replenishing fertility blanket blanket battery you know a battery in the sense that it's a it's a fertility storage and that, that generates biomass that feeds a whole lot of birds and other animals and and you know, has done so for a very long time that then replenishes uh, up the ridges and, and into the wider landscape and a blanket in the sense it's a soft flat uh, region anyway i hope that gives you a hint of where this can take you and in a case like that, it's quite concrete, it's quite specific. And moving forward, I can engage with this property as, as sitting within a self-replenishing uh, fertility blanket battery. Or in, in the case of my daughters, I'm not going to share what I've gotten, gotten to, but I'm finding that far from any sense of categorizing or typing or anything like that, just playfully and loosely holding in two or three words, a kind of experimental idea of what seems to show up 
in all these different ways in this particular child, it actually helps me, and this is where we cycle back to the first one, it helps me engage with that child and image that child, image that being, this being, in this case my beautiful daughter, as a whole. And so the insights around realizing that unless we're doing something, whether we call it essentializing or not, and whether we say it arrives at essence or not, unless we're doing something akin to what I'm calling essentializing, which is moving through the scattered fragmentary superficial details of what makes something distinctive to a more kind of deeper source level uh, engagement, we're unable to actually uh, move forward in a way that honors the whole as a whole. Either I can deal with all the superficial differences all the different things the kid likes or the, the patterns they have um, in a piecemeal way, or if I'm actually sort of, sort of able to engage with those, those details through the lens or, or by holding this deeper underlying idea I've arrived at, it's very hard for me to actually continue to engage with this child as a whole. I, I end up defaulting back to fragments in a mechanical um, perspective. Hey, well, this is all a slightly future version of Dan. So this is me a day after I recorded everything else you've been listening to. I was just giving this a quick edit. And I realized in trying to, um, I don't know, give you access to this insight I'm talking about, in a way I missed the culminating point, <laughs> the, the, the take-home part of it all. Um, so I decided to throw it in here. And so it is that the insight this all led me to was that the thing that makes something whole is the degree to which it can bring or it can express this source level, core level, what Carol calls essence level or essence, the degree to which it can manifest that or honor that or be aligned with that um, in the surface details of how it shows up in the world. Which brings me back to the other distinction I'm, I've chosen not to explore otherwise here, but Carol talked about the distinction she got from David Bohm between the implicate world and the ex explicate world. And often what we're doing when we make our lists and we engage in different projects is we're confining ourselves to the explicate world, you know, the stuff we can see and touch, which often, due to the eyes we look with, is fragments, parts, problems. And what she's inviting us into is a certain way of, of accessing the implicate world, part of which is for her this idea of essence, um, which you can't just see, grab, pick up. It's something you need to learn to, to access and to, to be able to kind of get a sense of, which as much is, is a felt thing as much as it is a, a thinking thing. But if you're able to do that, so in the case of my daughters or um, whatever, an organizational landscape, if you can kind of hold that deeper grasp of what's core to this thing, as you uh, engage with it and, and, and support it, support its development, you're able to do so in a way that honors it as a whole, because you have a sort of a way of knowing what belongs, what authentically is part of its development on its own terms, as opposed to unwittingly imposing your own ideas because you're tying everything back to that underlying source core or essence level. And to me, this is a this was a fresh perspective on something I'd accessed in a different way some years back, but it excites me. And the upshot is I realized there's a very, very, very deep and profound connection between the, the first two of the seven first principles, wholeness and essence, 
which is part of the reason they're first principles. They're called principles. They're not not a list in the in the sense we've been using it here. Okay, I hope that little bit helped, and I'll I'll drop back in now. I'm just about to go on to to talk about how all this stuff applies not only when we're uh, observing and getting to know something a whole, but also when we then move through to doing things, to engaging with it, to um, intervening and designing and so on. Actually, I didn't mention that earlier, but that's a big part of this, is that once we move forward beyond auditing or observing or immersing in some hole or holes we're dealing with, when we come to do something, if we stop at the big long list approach, the fragmented approach, or we stop at the fragments and we don't essentialize down to what's underneath them, then design by default has to become an assembly process where we're trying to connect, integrate, relate or join and assemble all these separate things. Because, of course, when you ask the clients what they want, they give you a wish list. You know, it's literally a list of these different things. So the list mentality can also come into, to, I believe, corrupt and take away wholeness of the process and the outcome and the design phase as well as the observation phase. Uh, all right, that was a long ramble. Um, I, I have to tell you, I've, I feel glad to have it off my chest. I'll be curious to see if any of that resonates with any of you. I, I definitely am holding a fairly clear insight that's bringing value to my my work um, and excites me. Whether I did that justice in what I just said, I guess we'll find out, won't we? So what's the upshot here? One is to explore sitting in the question and notice whether you already do this of, of what is the hole here? What larger holes or what other holes is adding value to? And um, and then moving into essence, how are the surface details of how this thing rolls, where do they seem to be sourced from, or how can I get to a more core grasp or understanding of, of this? Just look out for that tendency to to make lists and to you know, stay with lists, basically, to deal with fragments. And whether you're making a list of parts, fragments, or problems, or trying to assemble a list of elements or whatever into into a hole, you're doing something different to what this approach of Carol's is an invitation into. All right, let's move on to the third of the seven first principles, which is potential. And uh, I, I, I remember back to the episode I had with Ben Haggard, and he, he, he really gave me a lot of insight into um, this idea of potential. And he was exploring it as how does the enduring core of something, or the, he used the phrase the originating impulse of something, how does that rise up to meet something that's called for in its context currently? Where, where that, where, where what's happening in the wider context can be changing. So it's how does something more enduring rise up to meet something that's um, more, more changeable? And um, I, 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 I got something out of that that was really useful. And another huge thing I find valuable in exploring this this third principle is the distinction between potential and problems and realizing how often we're taking a problem solving a problem seeking approach or we're letting problems grab our attention and then moving toward trying to solve them which is inherently a fragmented approach how we can step out of the problem mindset into the potential mindset which is what's what's possible here what would it I mean to support the evolution or growth of the system toward something. I mean, often language in this approach is toward expressing more of itself as opposed to simply solving problems, which is you know, making something undesirable go away 
in terms of actually um, nurturing the growth of something. It's supporting something to, to, to grow and develop and express itself more. I remember Carol in our chat says something like, problems beget fragments, beget lists, um, beget generic um, templated solutions, something like that. Uh, not not wasn't that close to that but that was the gist I recall and then and she, then she talked about how if you move uh, identifying a whole begets the question around essence or what, what I've communicated as essentializing um, which begets the, the the possibility of tuning into the potential of something yeah so that's the that's the third principle what's what's this whole um, sourced in this um, in this, this deeper place what's what's its potential what's possible for it uh, and then we'll I think we'll keep rolling so the the fourth of the principles is development which he described as the bridge between the inner and outer worlds so the you, you kind of do this more inwardly focusing work on what's the whole what's its essence or how do we essentialize towards what's core to it and then how do we get in touch with what its potential is and then development is the is the is the bridge into the expressing that stuff um, and the idea is that potential alone uh, is doesn't mean anything happens you know that you've got to develop potential like a child is born with the potential to walk and that potential has to be developed and so rather than thinking of or talking about potential as something that you unleash or um, turn on or something like that, uh, the, the whole lot of work begins once you've identified a whole what's unique or distinctive about it and what, what its potential is in terms of how it can bring its, um, its a distinctive core contribution um, into, into something that's, that's needed to add value to something that's needed in the world right now, um, what, what's its potential to do that? Then we do that work of, uh, if we're talking about ourselves, of developing that, or we can be a resource to others developing themselves, be they um, life sheds, organizations, individuals, or other wholes. Um, all right. All right, let's move on to principle five, which is nested holes. And this is an interesting one. I, I may have alluded to this already, but I, I, I have trouble with engaging with principle one without bringing in principle five. I have, you know, I have trouble actually kind of imaging a whole as alive and um, contributing and adding value and all that um, without already imaging the fact that it's nested within larger holes. But anyway, this, this principle makes that explicit. And what I want to draw out here is the distinction between because on the one hand, it's like, oh, you nested holes. Yeah, I get it. You know, I already, I already think like that. A, a, a leaf is in a branch, is in a tree, is in a forest, is in a valley, you know, whatever. But I want to explore a more radical application of this idea of nested holes, which I do get from Carol. I don't think this is being imposed. I pretty much heard her explore this, and she explored it and shared it in our chat in the last episode. But the idea that nested holes can replace be an alternative to the whole idea of assembling, integrating, relating, connecting, which of course is core, or has been core. I don't think it, how do I put this? For a long time, it's been core to how permaculture is practiced. I don't think it needs to be core to what permaculture is. 
the idea that you can assemble parts to form a whole system, I think, is itself a fundamentally broken idea and a mechanical idea. It goes back to um, Descartes, the idea of treating the universe like a giant clockwork machine. And so this one's a radical departure from that perspective, which is that rather than thinking, okay, there's all these separate elements, how are we going to relate them? You know, how are we going to make a list of all the things and then join them together, click them together, like playing Lego or something? even though we talk about functional functional connections and how's the output of one system going to flow into the, become the input of another, how's the the poo, the manure that comes out of a chicken's bum going to become a, a desirable input for the fruit tree and, and, and how can we maximise the number of functional connections in the system. The idea is that that whole way of thinking, that we, we, we're joining separate parts, we're connecting elements, can be replaced by this idea of nested holes. Well, that's what I'm exploring anyway. And I'm, I'm not I'm not all the way there with it, but I have been playing around with it. And I do find it helpful. So, for example, rather than thinking about my family primarily in terms of the connections or relationships between four separate people, um, I focus on the fact that each of us is nested well, there's, and there's layers. So I'm nested inside a marriage with my wife, and that marriage is nested within the family comprising the four of us. And so rather than making the focus... It's kind of a flatland view. You've got all these separate elements, in this case four separate people, how they're all connected, how do we draw arrows between them all, um, which is often how we make a permaculture design. How instead do we bring our focus to how are we each nested within these large entities, marriage, family, which which kind of brings us this, this, this new this new dimension. And when I'm engaging with clients and acting as an educator and a, and a resource to organizations and, and, and different individuals and stuff, increasingly I'm supporting them to, to make it more automatic or native to think in terms of nested holes. And, and when they're going about anything, like a business for example, it's like at the very beginning, let's clear, get clear on who and what you are as a whole and then what are the holes you're nested within and let's not talk about those holes in incredibly generic, abstract, vague, glib ways, but in concrete, specific, um, focused, uh, clear ways and then use what we discover to actually form up you know, your work around purpose and tension and decision-making and um, all that kind of thing. So I guess my invitation here is for you to experiment. Just catch yourself when you're thinking, your mind's going down the path or the, in, in the rut of thinking about how do I connect separate elements? And it doesn't matter if you call it connecting or relating or integrating, it's all the same idea. Explore what it might mean for you. In a way, try and break that idea and see see if you could retrain your mind or, or, or take your mind into th reframing it in terms of nested holes. I'll be curious to see what you find and what you think it may or may not have to offer permaculture. Hey again, it's Future Dan coming back at you from the future, which is all in the, your past, of course, now. But anyway, I wanted to th um, share a couple of really clear examples of what I'm talking about here. And so the first one is the whole concept of work-life balance, which is a familiar term. You know, you Perhaps you've used it yourself. A lot of people use it. Uh, it's something we aspire to, to, and it's probably a highly Googled term. How do I get better work-life balance? What's happening in there is exactly what I'm talking about. We're reducing everything to elements on the same level. In this case, there's this thing called life, 
and as a single work and trying to figure out how they they're better connected or how we can bring them into a more balanced relationship or integrate them or you know whatever it's the same pattern the same way of thinking and it's it's a nice example because it's so clear you probably already get it right that it's an outright fallacy to think of them in that way when you've got the option of coming at them as nested holes and where the question really is how's my work or whatever work means for me how's that nested within my life as a whole the other example i wanted to share is that we so often see this language around the connection between humans and nature you know human nature connections um healing our relationship with earth getting back in reciprocal relationship with earth all that stuff is a clear example of what i'm talking about as well and when you think about it, it it's, it's kind of ludicrous right it, well on the one hand it's ludicrous on the other hand it's incredibly arrogant it kind of re- diminishes Earth to be sort of like another person or, or something like that. It's like, oh, yeah, yeah, um, this week I'm hoping to improve my relationship with Brian and I want to catch up with Lucy for a coffee. And then later in the week, I'm, I'm going to put some energy into my relationship with Earth as well. Whereas the nested holes perspective is so much more appropriate and, well, let's say honest or something. It, it puts us all in our right place without diminishing anyone, but to realize that we are nested within life sheds or larger ecologies and ultimately within earth within universe <laughs> so hopefully those two very clear examples of of patterns we catch ourselves in or you'll catch other people in all the time can be upgraded in more regenerative directions by bringing in the concept of nested holes all right back to where we were the last thing i'll mention is one thing i'm loving too is combining the idea of evaluating process and nested holes so this idea that I'm nested within these larger holes and that I'm aspiring to send ripples of value out, you know, out through me into my marriage, into my family, into the larger um, tribe we're part of um, or community we're part of. It's in some ways aspiring to be more tribe-like. How is a business sending ripples of positive value into the lives of its customers and, and through them into the lives of the the people that they, they inter, uh, I was going to say interact with, that they are... Um, then nested in larger holes with (laughs) okay let's keep rolling so the sixth principle is the idea of nodal intervention whereas carol explained in the last episode the word node derives from the word not and the way i see a node based on what i've been learning from carol is that it's a place in a whole in a whole system where energies come together or you flow through each other such that if you learn to discern the nodes from the non-nodes you're able to come in and intervene at those nodal points hence nodal intervention in a way that if it's done at the right time in the right way with the right energy and everything it can catalyze a, a phase change a, a shift across the whole the whole system so she used the example of the acupuncture point i think of the example of wolves being reintroduced into yellowstone park over in the states and how that catalyzed an ecological cascade that for a relatively small intervention shifted the the ecology of the whole place as as an example i've been having fun with this i'm currently on a seven acre property in in new zealand which i mentioned earlier and my mum listens to the podcast right and so i went to visit them the other day their house is on the same property i sat down mum looks at me and she says nodal intervention let's talk about it so okay so this is fun i'm chatting to my mum about nodal interventions and one thing we played around with was was looking at this property in terms of its nodes as 
a bunch of different families live here and there's lots of different centres and, and things going on. We asked the question of what are the social nodes here? And we identify what we call the primal social node, this place where they make coffee every day and everyone coincides. And then, then, then these secondary nodes, realising to affect the, the culture on that side of things here, um, the, the nodes are where it's at. And another application was in the last community of practice tier gathering for wonderful patrons of this project, we applied the seven first principles to us as a community of practice. And so we went through the questions around whole, around essence, around potential development, nestedness. And when we got to nodal intervention, it was very valuable. Like the, the questions took us to some great places and we got a lot of clarity on um, kind of our core work and, and, and the potential for developing that. And when we got to nodal intervention, one thing we explored was if, if we consider permaculture as a global movement as a whole, a bit vague as to whether it qualifies, but in some loose sense it does, I would say. So if we scan permaculture as a global movement, looking for nodes, what are the nodes? And one that jumped out quickly and obviously was the permaculture design certificate course. It's a nodal point of where permaculture self-replicates and shares and, and different educators come together and you know there's a lot of energies flowing in and out of permaculture design certificate courses. And we wanted to get even clearer and sharper in the focus of places we might intervene as a community or, or um, contribute to projects that, that intervene. And we, and we thought, well, what if, if we now zoom in on permaculture design certificate courses as a node within permaculture, what's a node within a permaculture design certificate course? And one thing that emerged was the teachers of the course, the way that they think, and in particular, the curriculum they bring. So are they teaching you know, directly from the designer's manual or have they done something different? So within the PDC, you could say a subnode is the um, overall curriculum the teacher brings, which is an aspect of the PDC. There are other aspects to do with the venue and the social side of it and everything. But then we kept zooming in and said, okay, what's a node within the curriculum? And we realized, well, one of the nodes that we're interested in is the way permaculture design process is thought about and shared within the curriculum, within the permaculture design course. And then we kept going and said, well, what's a nodal, potentially nodal intervention point within the design process? And what came up was the design project that, um, that Mollison instigated as a core um, inclusion in, in any permaculture design course. And as far as I know, it continues to be included in, in those I'm aware of. And realizing that that was an example of a node and hence a nodal intervention point, such that if us or some other group or whatever was able to offer resources around ways that a design project could be integrated into a PDC that were informed by, let's say, cutting-edge conversations or, or earnest attempts to deepen and upgrade permaculture's own internal design process understandings, that over time that was done in the right way with the right energy, that could potentially catalyze a shift, sending ripples of value back out through permaculture as a movement. And so you can hopefully get a sense that a lot of the value I'm getting from exploring the seven first principles is the questions they support to be asked and then the places that that takes and focuses your attention. And definitely for me is opening up possibilities that wouldn't have been come across my radar otherwise. Hey, future Dan here. Look, I can't help but jump in and share a couple of contrasting approaches. So ways that are, that are different from nodal interventions that I've picked up here and there from Carol. One approach would be the do nothing approach or the passive approach. 
which is kind of hope for the best and then deal with issues, react to problems when they crop up, something like that. Then a step up from that would be the let's cover all our bases, a sort of shotgun or scattershot approach where you try a little bit of everything so you know you don't miss out. You're not, you're not discerning anything like where the, the best places to put energy are. You're just putting a, a small bet on every horse kind of thing or investing in every type of marketing option or whatever it is. Uh, trying a bit of everything. Then moving up from that would be the idea of scale. You know, that, hey, this seems to be a good idea, this seems to work, so let's scale it. Which takes you straight into the realm of generic templated solutions. And so it has, has profound limitations. And then moving up from there, you'd go to the idea of setting priorities. You know, what, okay, let's let's make a list of priorities. And, and I mean, I, I use that word all the time. I wonder if you catch yourself using it. You know, I, I want to prioritize this or my priority today is such and such. Effectively a list-based approach and what goes at the top of the list, which is more effective than the ones I've just mentioned. But wait, there's more. Then you could move to the idea of leverage, which you hear a lot in permaculture systems, you know, like find the leverage points and that idea of leverage is a mechanical metaphor coming from the idea of using a small amount of energy to or a small amount of weight to lift a much greater weight so put a kilo of effort on a on a on a seesaw with the fulcrum in the right place and you hey wow you can lift 10 kilos or or 20 kilos or maybe if your lever is sophisticated enough 100 kilos so still a, di- a relationship between the energy you're putting in and the energy you're getting out and then we move into the idea of nodal which is there's really there's no direct relationship between the amount of energy you put into a system, which can be absolutely tiny. You know, a nodal intervention can be asking a question or disrupting the habitual flow of a business meeting or organizing a, a, a certain kind of event or whatever it is. And and the effect it can have it if, if it is nodal and it is delivered in the right way at the right time with the right energy and everything is to catalyze a, a phase shift that sends out ripples of transformation through the layers of nested holes. So hopefully that that helped me, I realized, when I was trying to get clear on what nodal intervention meant and differentiated in my mind from all these other much more common approaches. All right, let's bring it home. We move from the sixth to the seventh, which is fields. And this seventh principle is a really interesting one for me. On the one hand, sometimes I feel like I get it. I grasp it. It seems clear. And then other times... It just seems to slip through my fingers, through my mind like smoke. I can share what it evokes for me and what Carol's sharings about it have evoked. I know she talked about it in terms of, she gave the example of building a regenerative field in a business and she talked about three layers that she works on that, of building capability, consciousness and culture. And my understanding, and I remember back to conversations on the podcast with Bill Reed too, where he'd say things like, you've got to build the field, Dan. You've got to build a field, a regenerative field, before you can really make things happen together. And so my sense is that it's kind of, it's 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 like the felt energy in a collaboration or in a, in a group of people. So it's it's like the, it's the felt sense of, of shared focus and will and motivation to work together um, and there's there's a I, I i get a kind of a an awakeness to it so like we're awake we're keeping each other awake keeping each other out of degenerative and automatic patterns and we're we're, we're experiencing we're sensing this this shared focus and alignment around purpose 
and it's within this field of shared energy that we can really get some cool shit done as we immerse in and, and honour the other six principles. It's something like that, and I've experienced this personally in being a member of one of Carol's, what she calls, change agent development communities. There's one for this part of the world, Deep Pacific CAD, Deep Pacific change agent development community and she starts every single session with some kind of exercise she calls it a wake-up exercise and i've taken this on board and i'm I'm doing this in the community the making permaculture stronger community of practice gathering we have every six weeks for a certain tier of patrons and the idea is that we we want to get away we want to disrupt ourselves out of any pattern like oh we're just here to sit back and dan's going to speak at us or in, in the group i'm part of i'm just going to sit back and carol's going to you know go blah 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 that we need to start by something that actually wakes us up, aligns us, um, gets us tuning into our own experience, and gets us all working together. And um, inside of that, builds some kind of intent around what, what it is we're here to do together. So that's the sense I currently have of, of what a regenerative field is about. And I've, I fully get and experience how important that is. And in, indeed, it's something I aspire in applying these principles to Making Permaculture Stronger as a project that I aspire to help breathe life into is a, is a shared field around this question, this process, this journey of disruptively and lovingly deepening permaculture's own internal self-understandings of what it is and what it's about and what its potential is and in particular the way that that design process is core to all of that all right well that's it i've done what i set out to do uh which feels like a an important stepping stone for me anyway to moving ahead thanks for listening i hope you got some value out of that you're not hopefully you're less confused than you were when we started, if you are engaging with these ideas, of course, um, that's the nature of this, of me, something to do with my my essence, if you like, seems to be around diving into approaches like this that stimulate me and interest me and seem to be breaking with degenerative and mechanical paradigms and worldviews, where it's just, for me, really about exploring them enough to find out what, if, if and how they have value, and then letting them inform the, the larger conversation. And so I'm, I'm looking forward in probably the next episode sharing a conversation with permaculture designer from uh, outside Brisbane, Queensland, Michael Wardle. And then from there, I'll, I'll simultaneously want to bring a lot of this thinking back to the question of permaculture's originating impulse, go back into the, some of the stuff David Hombrin shared about the seed of permaculture, what all that means for phase two of, of making permaculture stronger, given that I went and coppiced the, the permaculture tree, chopped the thing to the ground, looking to literally regenerate a permaculture design process understanding or approach that's worthy of permaculture, that honours uh, where permaculture has come from and its potential to to serve larger holes, add value to larger holes in the future. And I'm also going to launch into a series of conversations where I've decided I want to get really clear for myself about what this topic of decolonizing permaculture means and how that may or may not relate to what I've been interested and up to with permaculture design process for a fair while. And I've already got an interview I've a conversation I enjoyed with Leah Penniman a month or so back that I'll be looking forward to editing and releasing soon. Anyways, thanks as always for being part of the journey. Thanks for those of you that continue to support the project through patreon.com slash making permaculture stronger. I'm really enjoying the, the live get-togethers we have in our online communities. And thanks to those of you that have been sending emails in appreciation of the fact this little old project exists. And I'll catch you a lot sooner than the last gap. I reckon I'll have a 
the next podcast dropping within a couple of weeks. So see you then. Bye bye. Thank you.